Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. So I struggled with uh, how to frame the topics that I wanted to cover this week, and I thought that I would lead with equity. It's very much been on my mind lately uh, for a number of reasons, not directly having to do with the news. And this one story, I think, really points out the mm, logical fallacy, the false premise of assuming that your test group is the, will, that what you learn about your test group will generalize to the broader population. In this case, we're talking about uh, pulse oximetry. And this is a device that you've seen them on your fingers of your family members. You've probably had one on your finger. During COVID, they, everybody bought one because one of the symptoms back that we knew about back in 2020 was feeling fine or maybe a little bit of short of breath, but having a drastically low oxygen uh, level. That was because of something called a VQ shunt, which I, you'd be grateful now. I'm not going to try to explain to you, but essentially venous blood mixes in with the oxygenated blood and you don't, can't get your blood level up. So their tissues are basically suffocating, but you kind of feel fine. Well, we've known that these skin sensors are uh, variable, but it was during COVID that we really made a critical process error. Because in trying to decide whether or not someone needed to be admitted or needed to be put on oxygen, we relied on those machines. And research that came out about a year and a half into COVID, this was July uh, 22nd, uh, basically coming out of Brigham and Women's Hospitals. Lead author was Eric Gottlieb, if you want to pull the article. And nail polish interferes with them, but skin pigmentation really does. And essentially, the darker the person's skin, the more likely they are to have a falsely elevated oxygen rating. In other words, if I have an oxygen of 80, but the machine is saying that my oxygen is 90, the doctors are going to mistreat me. They aren't going to mistreat me deliberately, but they're going to categorize me as not needing high flow oxygen, whereas I really do. And essentially... uh these readings often are falsely high for uh, for dark-skinned people, and that's outside of their ethnicity, but it's obviously very, very important. It turned out when we went, did our look back comparing arterial blood gas, that, by the way, doesn't is an invasive procedure where they actually have to stick a needle into your artery, which hurts and is hard to actually do well. So it takes time and talent and training for people to draw an arterial blood gas. And then you have to put it on ice and rush it to the laboratory who has to immediately run it through a sensor before the oxygen gets consumed by the cells in the blood, right? So, I mean, that's their blood, that's their oxygen supply and they're just going to use it. So you've got to rush in order to get anything resembling an accurate number for what the brain cells and the heart cells are seeing. Well, black patients, three times more likely to have hidden hypoxia than white patients. And this is paralleling something that we've seen with a, uh, a renal thing called the glomerular f- filtration rate. And recently, that the fact that we have two sets of levels, one for 
quote-unquote African-Americans and one for everybody else has been suggested to be, you know, are we sure that's right? And when you go back and look at the data, yeah, it's really not supported. What does that do? Well, it basically means that a elderly black male with hypertension is going to be classified as having less kidney disease than a elderly white male with actually probably the same level of kidney disease. We're going to misclassify them because we're tweaking the data because of racial differences. Now, there are genetic differences, and some genes are held in higher percentage in certain ethnic groups, but not universally. So using race, country, or ethnicity as a short uh, as a shorthand for what the genes might be, we're way, way past that. Our technology is way past that, and we shouldn't be relying on these antiquated measures. So another place where we saw equity in the last three years, I've been preparing a lecture about, uh, <laughs> among other things, the fallacies of medicine. Uh, I'll be giving them that up at uh, UCSC tomorrow. So I guess I'm, you know, pride goeth before a fall. We have plenty of pride in our science, and we fall on our face on a regular basis. Another day, another study looked at vaccination on and tar- how to target vaccination in a uh, in an epidemic. Because hey, we just had one, and what they found was that. The the epidemic models that we've been using, they make very strong assumptions about population mixing. That is to say, people in an area mix homogeneously and thus have equal infection and fatality rates and equal chances to spread the virus. But that didn't happen. Okay, those are false premises. So the research team actually redid a model that incorporates mobility behavior. That is to say, how much traveling do you do? Where do you go? How many places do you touch in a typical day? Demographic demographic differences in order to capture uh, the diverse COVID-19 risks. It's crucial to notice, for example, that low-income families are worse off, regardless of their race, because they have to sustain their original level of mobility for the sake of livelihood. They aren't going to be able to shelter in place when their job is to be a bus driver. And they're more likely to spread the virus. So that's the key group to vaccinate. White-collar workers who can work from home should not be on the high-priority list the next time we have to deal with a, vac- with a new vaccine and vaccine shortage. Uh, even when you take combination of age and occupation, it's still very flawed. You really need to look at economic data and occupational behavior. And you also have to look at at vaccination acceptance rates. Now, I was a front row witness to this in 2020 because we had our North County and our South County in the South County population with a much higher Latino uh, grouping uh, and much, well, a sort of average American education level where in North County we had all of the people who were, you know, university professors and, and of course, many many you know, university graduate students and such. 
So the vaccination rates and the rates of acceptance and uh, were quite different. And just even hearing about where you could get a vaccination and having the computer and having the ability to do it. And I want to just again compliment uh, the Santa Cruz County Public Health Service because they saw the importance of this and they did such enormous outreach and they were very smart about it. They went to the growers, the people who hire all of the agricultural workers. They did vaccination clinics in the field. They did testing. They provided little pop-up testing centers at the county fairgrounds in Watsonville. They made it uh, on Sunday, I might add, which is when people aren't working. They made it easier for people to get tested and vaccinated. And that made we were top, practically top, if not the top in the state in terms of what we would call our equity rating for reaching those low income populations. And that is regardless of race. Those are the people that normally get neglected. And yet those are the people who are most likely to be vectors because they can't shelter in place. So rationality breaking out, at least in small little pockets, rather like bacteria in a petri dish at the moment, but hopefully we will overgrow the dish and spread uh, common sense and a better approach to both justice and equity in our society. I think there's a chance of that. I'm very optimistic that we might just try. Now, here's another social justice issue, and that's good cardiometabolic health. Less than 7% of the U.S. adult population has good cardiovascular health, and that is just a health crisis waiting to happen. Uh, Levels of blood sugar, blood pressure, blood cholesterol, and overweight, and the actual absence of heart disease were looked at in this review of a wide level of data. Trends between uh, 1999 and 2018 were also studied. And they found that as of 2018, only 6.8 of U.S. adults actually checked out as good on all five of the components I just mentioned. Uh, the, the rates for adiposity between 20, 1999 and 2018 worsened significantly. Uh, in 1999, one out of three adults had were not overweight or obese, one out of three. That number decreased to one out of four by 2018. And likewise, three out of five adults didn't have diabetes or prediabetes in 1999. Uh, now, fewer than four out of 10 adults are free of these conditions. And this is as of 2018. I don't think 2020 made it better. Okay, that means we've gone from 1.5 in 10 people who weren't uh, overweight, to four in 10 people who weren't overweight. Uh, that's. I want you to sit with that number, and I want you for the moment to just pretend that you work for Big Pharma and you're a marketing executive, okay? And I'm going to take a moment while you sit with that thought. What would you do with that information? There's a mar- There's a growth market there. There's a need. Your job is to meet needs as they emerge in the market. Do you have an answer? What would you do with your very successful, very expensive diabetes drug that came out about 10 years ago and is very very successful 
in lowering the blood sugar and lowering the hemoglobin A1C and very helpful in, oops, helping diabetics lose weight. Well, probably the first thing you'd do would be to fund a study to show that this drug also works in non-diabetics, people who are very overweight and helps them lose weight, perhaps an alternative to gastric bypass surgery. And indeed, that's what happened. As a result, we have drugs like Ozempic. Uh, we have uh, like Wixella, which is the same drug in a slightly different package by a, by a different company, but really, really the same thing. And a host of other, com- uh, other drugs coming on the market. Uh, the story lead here is a new drug that was granted a fast-track designation for weight loss by the Food and Drug Administration. And we've talked about why fast-tracking for uh, non-lethal diseases is maybe not such a good idea, especially d- drugs with this kind of side effects that I'm about to be telling you about. This drug is a diabetes drug. It's called Monjaro, and it's got promising trials and clinical results. Uh, it's also called tirzipatide. And it, like the others, it's a weekly injection that controls blood sugar. It was approved in May 22, and it's a Me Too drug, but it's also got an additional ingredient. That additional ingredient is a glucose-dependent insulinotropic polypeptide, basically a fake hormone that helps with the release of insulin after food consumption a hormone that essentially doesn't fire unless the blood sugar goes up. As the blood sugar goes up, it triggers the the pancreas to release insulin. Uh, The glucagon-like peptide receptor agonist, this is the type that is already being used in weight loss and approved. Uh, Well, the hashtag hashtag Monjaro has been uh, trending uh, now we trend on TikTok, not t- Twitter. By the way, that's so last year. Uh, a study recently came out showing a seventy-two week trial. Okay, I'll give them that decent duration, six years. No, sorry, seventy-two weeks. Excuse me. So yeah, you know, a little over a year. Substantial and sustained reduction in body weight, regardless of drug dosage. Uh, it's of course not approved for weight loss, but doctors can prescribe it off label. And, well, guess what? There's been a run on the market. It is now listed in one uh, as one of the 200 drugs that are in short supply, including all the other injectable weight loss drugs. And Ellie Lilly is uh, very happy. They're going to open a billion-dollar manufacturing plant to make more of it. Yeah, so now what's the problem? Yeah, this is great. People don't have to have their stomachs amputated. They can actually just take a drug. Well, we also have data now coming out on those early groups that led to the drugs being approved in May, showing that when they stop taking the drug, yeah, the weight comes back. So this is a treatment, not a cure, which is perfect for the market, my friends, because you don't really want to cure the disease. You actually just want to treat it and keep treating it and keep treating it. Now, We'll start with side effects. I mentioned um, that there were several of them. Severe stomach issues, kidney problems, and kidney failure are all uh, severe side effects of this agent. If you 
have kidney issues, you probably shouldn't take it because you'll get dehydrated from the diarrhea and the nausea, and that could take you down another level on your kidney function. Uh, Nausea, diarrhea, and vomiting are typical, and you have to step people up through the dosage. Uh, I typically, what I find in giving this to patients for diabetes is that we have to give them uh, about four steps and increase the dose gradually by about a quarter of a milligram until we get them up to one or two milligrams over maybe six to eight weeks. And then at that point, the people are usually able to tolerate the higher doses. But every time we kick the dose up, the nausea, diarrhea, and vomiting come back a little bit. So you have to be working with the doctor on this. And it's an easy, I can just see people you know, shooting up the whole thing, you know, buying it and shooting up the full dose because they're anxious to start losing weight and really doing injury to themselves. Uh, if a patient has a family history of a type of thyroid cancer called medullary thyroid cancer, or if they have a particular endocrine system, this drug will will give them cancer. So I wanted to spend a little time talking about MEN, multiple endocrine neoplasia syndrome, and This is one of the reasons I object to this drug, but the other is the cost. So let's cover cost first. Uh, It's going to cost about $13,000 a year if you take this drug, and that's a little bit less than the monthly cost, $1,000 per month. It's a little bit less than the monthly costs for uh, Wigovi and uh, Ozempic, but insurance coverage for weight loss medication is very inconsistent. I have patients whose copay is $500 a month, and their insurance company is paying the rest, uh, Medicare doesn't ever cover weight loss medication. Uh, interesting, it covers weight loss surgery if you're heavy enough, but it doesn't cover meds. And uh, we're looking to about $48 billion a year worth of money uh, projected for uh, Ellie Lilly after this drug is released, if it's approved. And it it is effective. You know, the clinical trial that lasted 72 weeks Participants lost 22.5% of their body fat, and uh, it can be 15% in the Wigovi study, but still, that's a substantial amount. Uh, so yeah, it's, however, not a cure, it's a treatment. Now, what's the price of treating obesity this way? Well, here's the background on multiple endocrine neoplasia. We think of it as a rare genetic disease. Uh, it's caused, it's it's primarily hereditary, which is why if you have a family history of medullary thyroid cancer, because that's the kind of cancer that, genetic cancer that you get from this, you probably shouldn't take it. It also causes parathyroid tumors. Parathyroid tumors can essentially, they're a small gland that controls your bone density and your calcium levels. So if you get a parathyroid tumor, you can well, among other things, cause a, uh, cause a cardiac sudden death if the calcium gets too high. But more likely what happens is you just melt your bones and end up with premature osteoporosis. Well, that's clever. Pheochromocytoma is an adrenal tumor. These are all benign tumors. Well, they're not benign in that they don't hurt you. They're just benign in that they don't metastasize. Pheochromocytoma is where the, the tumor makes adrenaline and you get unpredictable surges of adrenaline, rapid heartbeat, sweating, you know, you know what adrenaline feels like. Uh, And these uh, people, of course, are suffering and have very high blood pressures and can have strokes. It's not. uh, These are not benign conditions. And 
Here's the problem with these uh, multiple endocrine neoplasias. We don't genetically test for them. That's not in your 23andMe. And it, there is a... It, so you could screen people and say, well, is there a family history? But 5% of people with this don't have a family history because 5% of them are a de novo mutation. See, mutations can just happen. And this is a vulnerable gene. So if you don't inherit it, you can just acquire it. And so we'll have no idea. So we've got one in... Th- 30,000 of the population who has this. Of that, most of them don't have a family history of the cancer, even though they've got the, they've got the gene. It's an autosomal dominant, so you only need it from one parent. And there's this huge under-the-radar group of people who, if, if they take this drug, are almost certainly going to develop one of these cancers. Uh, but we don't know who they are. Should we test for this? You could Look for it genetically and screen for it. There is it, there that can be done, but you know that's probably a couple thousand dollars right out of the of the door. And is the insurance going to pay for that? No, they'd rather just take the one in the one in three million hit of uh, an unnecessary cancer. You know that's a drop in the bucket. They'll just pay the uh, pay for the lawsuit. This is crazy. All right. This is not a drug that should be that's ready for prime time. It shouldn't be something. Now, treating diabetes, you know, that's a life threatening disease and people die from the complications of diabetes. And yes, obesity is a life threatening disease, but I'm not ready to devote the resources that it's going to take to treat this population with this drug forever. I think we need to re-engineer our food system rather than try to go to the thought. Let's go upstream, right? Let's go upstream. Let's fix the food system. Let's let's educate people. Let's let's get rid of the food deserts. Let's make sure that children uh, receive proper nourishment, not ketchup as a vegetable. And you know what's going to happen? The obesity levels will plummet and we won't need this drug. And the money that we spend... It'll be well, well spent. Imagine if we housed people rather than arresting them for being homeless. You know, what what would the would the budget balance out? Certainly financially, I think it would from the standpoint of justice and equity. Well, I think the scales would tip a long way in the other direction. You're listening to K-Squid. 90.7 90.7 FM. I'm Dr. Don Motika. This is Ask Dr. Don. And you can give us a call at 831-900-5773. Or you can send an email to onair at ksqd.org. So I had an email today, uh, just one, which made me sad. But uh, this email was about music and then from a listener who had been listening to my discussion of how playing a musical instrument, uh, particularly if it's a new musical instrument, but also if you're playing difficult things on your old musical instrument, actually helps you learn, helps you preserve your synapses, and helps reverse and prevent progression of cognitive decline. So, The other one is learning a language. For those of you who didn't catch the show, with respect to the question about listening to music, listening to music is a passive act. It's a wonderful thing to do. It's very relaxing. 
If you listen to upbeat music, you might find yourself actually moving around and burning a few extra calories. And anything that lowers your stress level is good, right? Because stress kills. Stress is pro-inflammatory. Stress raises your cortisol levels. Cortisol raises your glucose levels. Glucose raises your insulin levels. Insulin is inflammatory. And off we're to the races, right? Cardiometabolic disease out the door. Why? From stress, from lack of sleep. You know what? If you have, if, if you don't get good sleep, your melatonin levels shift and your ability to your glucose, if you don't sleep well, your insulin resistance goes up. So you become a little more diabetic the days after you don't sleep well. I'll often have my patients, well, you know, I did, what happened? I ate, I ate the same thing last night. And my blood sugar was sky high this morning. And I'm like, well, did you sleep? Did you sleep or was it a bad night? Well, yeah, I was up all night. Well, there you have it. Your body is stressed. And basically, <laughs> in uh, evolution, there, the only real chronic stress is food stress. And so when you're starving, think about it. Uh, you're hungry. You're stressed. You're not sleeping. You're starving. Your body says, oh, I better, um, better in, you know, increase that insulin resistance so that the glucose stays in the bloodstream so it can feed the brain rather than feeding the muscles, you know, and make the person feel tired so they'll just lie there and then at least the brain will get fed. And of course, that kind of happens in diabetes as well because the sugar isn't getting into the brain. It's the same problem. The sensors aren't sensing what's actually there because they also have insulin receptors that have been downregulated. Vicious cycle, guys. Vicious cycle. So what can we say about this in summary? We can say that listening to music is good for you because it reduces your stress. It probably will help you sleep if you listen to the right music. And it takes your mind off the news and the podcasts and the talking heads and all the other stuff that we probably should be having, should not be binging on or overdosing on the way we are in this, you know, stuff coming at you from every angle. If you can, turn off your phone at a time certain. You know, if you're a mom and you got to be on tap for the kids, Trade off that duty so that you can have a couple of hours uh, where you aren't on all the time. You need not always to be on. I think that's super, super important. And we're going to launch into a discussion now uh, about Parkinson's disease and some interesting findings about how there's a symptom that shows up many years before uh, Parkinson's disease that might be something we could use. Now, there have been many drugs that were tried on people who were manifesting Parkinson's disease, but by then they'd lost, by the time we could diagnose them, they'd lost a lot of neurons in their substantia nigra, maybe too many neurons for us to uh, rescue them, right? Maybe the de- the circuits are already burnt out and can't be rebuilt. But what if we could go upstream? What if we could find the disease and in its much, much earlier s- stages? Would all of those drugs that we tried and rejected, would some of those work? Would some of the therapies that we think of, like, for example, very high dose coenzyme Q10 has been suggested, and there was one study 
in an Alzheimer's model in animals that shows it was quite effective. Now, coenzyme Q10 protects mitochondria, and the final step of the loss of a neuron is when the mitochondria decide, well, it's time to pull the plug. And they are the things that actually trigger apoptosis or programmed cell death. They're the person hitting the destruct button at the con- at the control console. So if you could keep the mitochondria happier by not letting them get as damaged, they probably wouldn't sense the cellular damage because it wouldn't be there. So they wouldn't hit the destruct button. So the neurons wouldn't go away. And there are other dr- agents that break up the alpha-synuclein deposits that damage the neurons that lead to the Parkinson's disease, or at least we think they're causal. Again, just like Alzheimer's, could be a symptom, could be a cause. That's up to debate. But certainly going back and trying this in people with very early disease would be a reasonable thing to do, especially since we have ways of uh, measuring the uh, alpha-synuclein that's in the spine by doing a spinal tap. So we could see the levels if they dropped. And if they did drop with these rugs, uh, we could reliably assume that we're actually helping this person not progress because they don't have the disease yet. They have the pre-disease. So there's something that affects about half a percent of the general population. It's called RBD, which stands for REM Sleep Behavioral Disorder, it basically consists of acting out dreams. And it's under a normal circumstance in sleep, when you enter into rapid eye movement dream sleep, you have a descending paralysis coming from uh, across the motor cortex. So the motor cortex gets turned off uh, the the part of the brain that is actually, I shouldn't say the motor cortex because it's actually the substantia nigra in the midbrain. That's the thing that gets suppressed with uh, during sleep. And that's, of course, the thing that gets damaged by the Parkinson's. So is that becomes damaged, the suppression doesn't occur and people uh, begin kicking and punching and acting out what's in their dreams. And, uh, there's a, an, an anecdote here about Alan Alda, who outed himself for having Parkinson's disease uh, in recently. And he uh, basically was in uh, a dream where he was in his TV show, MASH, and uh, he felt like he was running for his life. So he saw a, pa- a bag of potatoes in front of him, so he grabbed it and he threw it at the person attacking him, right? Good movie mood. But then he woke up and he was in his bedroom and he had standing in the bed and he'd just thrown a pillow at his wife. And of course, being Al, being Alan Alda, he did some research and went to his neurologist and twisted the neurologist's arm because he saw the studies that said, thank you, Internet, that this RBD could be a prodrome symptom of Parkinson's. Now, Sleepwalking, right? Well, what about sleepwalking and sleep talking? These do not occur during REM sleep. These are these are non-rapid eye motion things, and they uh, tend you tend to outgrow them. They're much more common in childhood and adolescence. Uh, they the RBD is also associated with drugs. Certain antidepressants in certain individuals will trigger it. Uh, narcolepsy, and also people with a brainstem tumor. So if someone comes in with this as a new uh, complaint, you get a brain scan. 
and you do a sleep study and confirm that it's RBD because the uh, sleep study can tell you what the brain waves are doing. So they're in R- they're in REM and they're kicking kicking and throwing pillows around. They've got RBD. Now people who show up with RBD epidemiologically have an 80% chance of developing a neurodegenerative disease within their lifetime. And it's often the first sign. It can show up 10 to 15 years before you can diagnose Parkinson's or Lewy body dementia. Uh, there's a third type of, uh, both of these are caused by the uh, accumulation of a protein called uh alpha-synuclein, which gets misfolded, let's call it tangled, accumulates in the neurons and eventually leads to cell death. There's also something called multiple system atrophy. And this interferes with both movement and involuntary functions, such as digestion. So people show up with chronic constipation. And uh, not, of course, everybody with chronic constipation was going to develop Parkinson's disease. And that's the thing. These distinctions are kind of spurious. What we're looking at, we we have a mentality where we see diseases as discrete entities. It's That's all we had 100 years ago was the syndromic observation. And when it was, when the syndrome was reliable and the features were consistent, we named it. And then we're resistant to giving those names up. And that's a political issue. Rather, uh, rather than a scientific one, but it's a serious issue in science. These barriers are spurious. So the features here that you get are the bowel doesn't work right. The motor function of the bowel goes sideways, and that's how you get the constipation. The sense of smell goes sideways, and that's one of the early detections. But actually, uh, this... RBD is also an early sign. This early intervention concept, I think, is really, really useful. And in people with RBD, as I said, the brains, the, the breaks that normally immobilize them during REM sleep uh, are, are lifted. But in the 1950s and 1960s, there was a French neuroscientist who lesioned parts of the brainstem in cats. And Jouvet found that uh, if he got a certain spot in the brain, the cats would sleep normally in terms of their brain waves. But while they were asleep, they would get up and walk around and bite things and swat at flies and groom themselves and play and prowl and do all the cat things because they were dreaming those. And their paralysis, their sleep paralysis was gone. The other thing he observed was that the personalities changed. So the cat's sleeping actions were unlike their waking habits. Uh, To quote his work, felines that were always friendly when awake behaved aggressively during REM sleep. Well, that, I think, is because when you're dreaming, the lizard brain is driving the bus. And so it's your limbic system, your amygdala. Those are your emotions. Those are the things. You feel fear. You're going to either run or you're going to counterattack depending upon the circumstances in the dream. But uh, when you've studied this, it definitely looks like RBD. People have a very high probability of eventually developing an alpha-synuclein accumulation disorder. So why 
Why is this useful? Well, I mentioned the drugs that have already been developed, but also we've learned that there's a difference that's going on. That place in the brainstem that's not act that's deactivated so that you don't move around. Well, it doesn't get deactivated in Parkinson's, so you have this RBD. But sleepwalking that's extra activity in the motor cortex. So could we shunt the motor cortex? Could we get people to use their motor cortex like they're using an RBD? Uh, could, we, could we put some kind of shunt in and let them while they're awake with their Parkinson's? There's one anecdote in this article where a person with bad uh, RBD and Parkinson's totally you know, unable to move during the day while awake, unable to speak. But in his dreams, he can throw things, he can throw punches, he can throw objects, and he can yell and verbalize. But he can't do any of those things when he's awake. It says there's hope, even at the level, maybe not a brainstem stimulator, although that's been tried, and in some individuals it seems to make a difference. Statistically, it doesn't. So it's kind of been abandoned for this. But I wonder if we just didn't put the electrodes in the right place. Maybe we need to revisit this using the information that the researchers in RBD are providing. I see a ray of hope there for people with Parkinson's disease. And I wanted to be sure that uh, people put that RBD, who who have Parkinson's or have a family member with it, you know, put that in your your Google alert search or whatever search engine you use, because it just might make a big difference. Our next article is about, well, the possibility that stupid is contagious, but not in the way, the joking way that we usually mean it. Gut viruses may actually influence our cognition. In a new study, researchers examined gut bacteria and viruses uh, in 114 people who were being followed progressively and who underwent serial cognitive testing. So this is, you know, testing of executive functioning, memory, uh, other sorts of what we would consider, quote-unquote, intelligent tests. Uh, Participants with higher levels of a particular bacteriophage, that's a bacteriophage is a virus that infects bacteria, and this is called cadovirales. Cadovirales, people who were infected with this, actually performed better on tests of executive function and memory, and People who had higher levels of microviridae performed worse on these tests. They did another group of 942 people, and again, uh, the virus content of their stool predicted their uh, where they fell um, on statistically on their test results. So then they took the people who had high levels of the cotoviralis, that's the good one, and transplanted them into mice. Ah. <laughs> uh, Yes, human fecal transplant uh, to mice. It's a time-tested method, but, you know, I wouldn't want to be the lab assistant. Anyway, uh, the mice performance on on mazes and other cognitive tests improved, and their brains, when they were chopped up and tested, were found to have upregulation of genes that are known to be associated with superior cognitive abilities. Finally, they fed these same cotoviralis phages to fruit flies, 
And believe it or not, you can do cognitive testing on fruit flies and the performance of the flies on cognitive tests also improved. So it raises a possibility. And need I say, let me say it twice, this needs to be replicated in another lab with a bunch of different people who also need to get published if it's positive or if it's negative, because this is a you know, let's just say it's an extraordinary statement and it requires extraordinary proof. But maybe not only stupid is contagious, but smart is contagious. Now, probably the bacteriophages in the gut influence human cognition because these bact- these viruses enter into the circulation from the gut and then they can enter human cells as well as bacteria cells. And we know from Parkinson's data, which is why this is actually a tie-in, is that the Parkins- is that the alpha-synuclein in the gut shows up first. You see higher levels in the gut. They get into the vagus nerve and they travel to the brain where they accumulate in the brain stem and lead to the Parkinson's disease. They raise the levels in the brain but they also get into the bloodstream and probably have an effect on other tissues as well. The point is that the microbiome and all of its possibilities and all of the potential ways of using and tweaking the microbiome just got a lot bigger in my Mind and now that I see that we can we can associate traits with the viral content, because it's relatively easy to infect humans safely with viruses, particularly oral viruses, and because they live on bacteria, um, I can I can see this being a way to treat well for starters people with uh, cognitive decline and people who are naturally. Uh, impaired in terms of their cognitive development. What happens when we give, it, it, do we have the flowers for Algernon uh, drug in uh, the, or operation or whatever it was in the original story? I think it was an operation. Uh, do Is flowers for Algernon going to be giving people a virus? Interesting thought, huh? So, Another interesting thought for those of you who have sleep apnea and either love or hate your CPAP device, believe me, it's there's a whole spectrum of eh, to I hate it, I hate it, I can't wear it, I tear it off my face at night, to I love it, I love it, I can't live without it, I won't leave home without it. Yeah, all of the above, because it's a quite variable disease, uh, disorder, I won't call it a disease, and n- Here's something that I think everybody has suspected, but now it's official. A study looked at alt, uh, at apnea hypopnea index. That's an overnight. That's one of the things we measure when a person does an overnight sleep study. But uh, they they wanted to check for accuracy, so they put a uh, they looked at a commonly used commercial device. Uh, that's placed under the mattress and basically detects respiratory patterns and apneas. And it's been validated against the huge, you know, study that big deal where you go and sit in, uh, sit in a cold, it's always so cold in those rooms, sit, lie in, lie in a, a slightly firm bed on, wired up to a bunch of uh, wires and, in a cold room and try to sleep. Uh, 
but it's got pretty good. It's 86% and 88% uh, validation, specificity, and sensitivity, so it's decent. And then they just tested people over a period of time, and what they found was a a lot of variability about for people with mild or moderate obstructive sleep apnea, uh, about 50% of the individuals would have been misclassified at a single, you know, random visit to the sleep clinic. Uh, for those with no sleep apnea or severe, about 20% of just a random once once would have misclassified them. But, you know, the 50% misclassification of people uh, mild to moderate, either mi- uh, missing sleep apnea entirely and saying they're fine or uh, putting them in the more severe category, that's that's pretty serious. Uh, so a single overnight study is not enough. People are often in denier. It would be good to verify and simple devices like this that could give you a reading over the course of the month that you're using your CPAP might be very useful. For one thing, they would serve as convincers if you could show people that the sleep CPAP was actually working for them and help them stick with it maybe a little bit better. Uh, Because a lot of times people just rationalize it away saying, well, I didn't sleep well that night. And I have to point out to them that if you didn't sleep well and they still think you have obstructive sleep apnea, you probably have even worse obstructive sleep apnea than the study, not less. But uh, yeah, we've got to question our data, have a little humility as we approach the uh, subject and always, always doubt our opinion. I uh, mentioned I was doing a lecture tomorrow. I'm opening that lecture with a quote from Mark Twain, which is, um, "It's not what you it's not what you know that gets you into trouble. It's what you it, it's what you absolutely know is true that ain't so that gets you into trouble." And I couldn't agree more. I'm going to change tactics now and talk in the last 10 minutes of the program to a uh, about a supplement. Uh, this is a supplement that comes from pineapple juice. It's called bromelain. I am not promoting it. I don't get any kickbacks from anyone. It's traditionally used to treat swelling and inflammation. It works really well after sinus surgery. And it's also good for for breaking up sinus congestion. One problem with uh, brom- bromelain that comes along in pineapple juice is that there's an awful lot of sugar in pineapple juice. So I would say using it therapeutically, you're much better off getting an extract. And uh, you really want to get an extract that contains both the fruit and the stem because the, the uh, antioxidants and the uh, anti-swelling drugs are better Back in 1993, uh, there was a German commission report looking at treating it post-op inflammation. They found it was quite effective for reducing post-operative swelling. I would consider uh, taking it, for example, uh, in people who have swelling after a fracture or a sprain. The stem, as I said, is the most common commercial uh, source because, of course, it's left over, but... If you can eat the extract of the stem, that's going to make a difference. So you could also chop up and eat the stem, but it's kind of not tasty. So uh, people probably aren't going to do that on a regular basis. 
it, it gets into the bloodstream fairly quickly, and it lasts about six to nine hours. So if you've got swelling and you take it three times a day, it's very, very effective. It's also a good anticoagulant. It uh, helps the body digest proteins in the gut. So while on its way in, it digests proteins. It's a protease. It, there's about eight different, different chemicals within bromelain, which help digest proteins. It breaks down fibrins. And so it can help prevent clotting and improve circulation. Uh, some peop- some claims are made that it may reduce the coagulation of blood platelets. And it uh, was used by Native Americans to dress and treat wounds, which is interesting. Uh, it slows the accumulation of bradykindin, uh, which is a, a pain-producing compound that accumulates in injured tissues and hurts. And it reduces the formation of uh, prostaglandins, so it's acting like a sort of or, well, organic Motrin, if you will. About a thousand milligrams daily, thousand to twelve hundred. Take it, uh, say, a four hundred milligrams th- three times a day, or a three hundred milligrams three times a day would be about right. It also seems to improve the uh, immune system, activates natural killer T cells, activates t- tumor necrosis factor alpha. Don't necessarily know which one's going to be stronger. So I'm probably not going to give this to a person with rheumatoid arthritis or autoimmune disease because I think the gain in inflammation and swelling might uh, be offset by an increase in the activation of the autoimmune disease. But it's also used 35% to uh, apply to uh, eliminating burn debris in, in, in when you have an ulcer. You know, we're always trying to take the collagen and the crap out of the ulcer and get ourselves a clean wound. And I was trained in doing that manually with tools. But just putting a thick paste of, of bromelain on the ulcer uh, is, you know, I definitely consider getting that compounded down at the local uh, compounding pharmacy. This is a non-proteolytic uh, effect. It's a component called escarase. Escar is Latin for scar. And it doesn't attack normal protein substrates uh, or various other natural body tissues. It only attacks scab and debris and helps dissolve those. So a very useful, selective kind of cleaning agent. And it's been documented to uh, uh, increase the blood and urine levels of antibiotics, probably helps them get into the system and it's often been uh, it's been tested in combined therapy in Europe, and shown that in many infections, if you add it to uh, the antibiotic, you get a better clinical outcome. Uh, it's also good if you have pneumonia, and it reduces the volume and the gooiness of the sputum, so it helps you cough things up. That's probably why it's so useful after sinus surgery, because you know when you do sinus surgery, they, the sinuses swell like crazy. But why did you do surgery? Because they were blocked. Right, So the treatment causes a worsening of the condition, at least short term. Anything we can do to mitigate that is really going to improve the surgical outcome. Uh, It helps uh, heal gastric ulcers, helps speed healing from bruises, and uh, again, used pre-surgically, although I will tell you, surgeons won't let you use it pre-surgically because they're afraid about the anticoagulation effects. So it's specifically prohibited in surgical instructions. But I went looking to see if anybody had ever like tried to figure out if the ben- what the risk benefit really was and if the 
if it really did cause more surgical bleeding. And I couldn't find any evidence for that. Unlike, say, St. John's wort, where there is good evidence, I couldn't find it for bromelain. So I'm not sure if that's a real risk or just a kind of will-of-the-wisp ghost, uh, just like the like when the uh, oncologists tell you don't take any antioxidants while you're on chemotherapy, there's actually a fair number of antioxidants that improve the effectiveness of chemotherapy, but it's drug by drug. And so rather than learn that, uh, the oncologists just, just do a blanket, uh, a blanket thing because that's what they're taught to do by their academy. But it's not a science-based recommendation. And I'm happy to criticize them for that because I think if we're going to... If we're going to class ourselves as scientists, well, we damn well better be scientific in our approach and not, you know, be promoting lore that possibly was disproved 20 years ago. There's also uh, evidence that Peyronie's disease, a disease where people develop fibrosis of the penis, uh, can be treated uh, with with this. And that's kind of uh, interesting. It's... uh, stimulates collagenase, which breaks up collagen by dividing the peptide bonds. It does, it, it is, by the way, excellent if you've got uh, rough skin and you're trying to uh, get it smoother or thinner using a bromelain ba- in a bromelain base, maybe mixed with a little of the papaya enzyme. Papain is an excellent uh, facial. Uh, and so just throwing that out, you know, your beauty tip for the day. But sometimes uh, a lot of these things can be uh, alert. A lot of these things can be useful in many, many ways. People who have allergies to carrots, celery, some papaya, some of the other things uh, may not want to take oral bromelain because it can uh, basically cross react with certain kinds of pollens. Uh, Definitely people with latex may get side effects from the bromelain similar to the usual side effects they get uh, from the agents. So there are some precautions. And, uh, you know, don't take it for a couple weeks before getting a tooth pulled. Uh, But again, that is a recommendation that I was not, with the exception of dental extraction, but at other surgeries, I was, you're there, you've got coagulation. I don't know that it's really a thing. Chemotherapy drugs, definitely some interactions. You want to look those up, but those are listed in the package insert. Some of the blood pressure medications interact, so lisinopril and captopril you want to use with caution, maybe use topically if uh, you're treating a wound or uh, sore, soreness. Uh, but it is an excellent supplement. I think it's underutilized in our culture, so I thought I'd introduce you to it. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to AskDrDawn.com for news about our future plans, or follow my tweets at at AskDRDawn. For now, this is Dr. Dawn saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Dawn is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Mansky. Music by John Scoville.